so every now and then I preach, uh, I prepare a message and I think this is either just going to be completely, everyone will be like, yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. It's very reasonable or everyone will leave the church. So that's like uh, what I'm doing today. Uh, so it's kind of a message that shouldn't be controversial at all, but has the potential uh, to be controversial. Uh, so I'm going to start out just by saying it's very fascinating to me how um, people tend to adopt a way of thinking early on in life. Somewhere in their teenage years, they, they say, these are the things that I'm going to think and these are the things that I'm going to believe. And then they just kind of ride out the rest of their days with that being what they think. And unless there is some uh, significant moment of trauma or shock or, or changing cities or relationship breakdown or I don't know, whatever, whatever it is, but generally speaking... Once people have programmed in what they think their ideas are, that's basically it for the rest of time. Uh, and we all know people who have, who have adopted a certain narrative about life, about uh, the facts, and then they become a complete and total evangelist to that worldview. Uh, and I'm not just talking about faith. I'm talking about whatever crazy hobby or worldview people have adopted. That becomes the thing that they uh, want to talk to everyone about. And it doesn't matter what new evidence you present that person with, they have made up their mind. Uh, once people have an opinion, irrespective of how baseless or ignorant that opinion can even be, or how outdated or illogical it is, or uh, what they'll do is they seek other people that will reinforce their opinion, and they reject people who will not reinforce that opinion. And uh, what we've done is we have allowed evidence in our society right now. We've allowed evidence be, to uh, be called fake news. And we've allowed alternative facts to become reality. And we have allowed uh, experts to be replaced with people who are merely commentators. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, but we used to listen to experts on things. Now we listen to the commentary of idiots about what experts think about things. We've moved beyond the point where we are willing to rationally, cognitively evaluate things and change. Whoever has the loudest voice drowns out uh, reason and critical thought. And uh, you know what? Even the research actually shows that when we find something that corroborates our worldview, it actually produces a dopamine hit in our brain. It's super addictive to feel right. Feeling like we have the right answer and finding someone who will agree with that like, and, and like, I'm the worst at this, so I, I get it. But it is so sweet to be right. It's a drug. So there's a, a certain point, though, where that, that idea that we've adopted becomes part of our identity. And it makes it even harder to change because we become so deeply invested in, in that, that changing isn't just a matter of our opinion shifting. Changing then becomes, actually, uh, it feels like a compromise and it feels like an attack on our personhood. The idea that we would move from one idea to another idea becomes uh, scary. It becomes difficult. And, and uh, so that's what I want to talk about today because there's the thing, being stalwart is not always a virtue. Sometimes it's just stubborn, ignorant pride. Having the humility to evaluate new ideas and to trust experts and to avoid confirmation bias uh, is essential if we are going to grow. And not just uh, in our, our worldview uh, generally, but if we are going to grow in our faith, we have to be able to move from uh, one idea to another idea 
when it's presented to us, and especially when, when God is pushing us and pushing us and pushing us. And there are big examples of this because, like, you don't have to go that far back in history when the Christians were all wearing white hoods. And I'm glad that we pushed beyond that idea of race-defining faith uh, and into a, a different season, but it took a whole bunch of people to rally against that broken racist worldview. But this isn't going to be a sermon about uh, politics or science, even though I would enjoy that. Uh, the reason I want to talk about this is because we are really guilty of this, uh, this same kind of rigid thinking in the church. Uh, people don't like change, and the church throughout history has certainly not been any different. We are the exemplars of not enjoying change. I don't know if you've ever heard the joke about a minister who joins a country church and uh, he wants to move the organ from one side of the room to the other side of the room and he doesn't want to have to have 15 parish councils or lose his job. So he just moves it one inch every single week for five years to get it from one side to the other. And it's the only way you can get any change to happen. Over the long arc of history, the church has made significant theological changes uh, and they often came with great bloodshed, which is terrible. Um, and a lot of these theological changes were really important, uh, but sometimes uh, the, the changes were actually not about changing theology and they were actually just about personality clashes hiding behind petty theology. So people got aggressive and defensive about their worldview uh, because they didn't like the person they were talking to and it had nothing to do with the actual underlying uh, ideas. Uh, so we find in the early church, they had this issue where uh, the, the Jewish Christians, which was kind of all of them at the beginning, said, if you want to be a Christian, but you are currently a Gentile, you must first convert to Judaism. And part of the process of converting to Judaism was circumcision. So it wasn't something that you kind of haphazardly or half-heartedly adopted. Uh, in order to become a Jew, it was, you know, a real challenge. Uh, so that was a big issue, as was things like eating meat sacrificed to idols. There was a whole bunch of arguments they had over what theology they should adopt. And then a thousand years later, we have the Eastern and Western factions of the church. So we have the Eastern Orthodox and we have the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. They had a massive spat. And I kid you not, the big spat that they had, and I think it was personality problem, but the big spat they had was uh, the adding of four words to the Nicene Creed and whether or not the bread for the Eucharist was leavened or unleavened. That was the big theological issue of their day that they were fighting for. It's crazy. It was called the Great Schism. And uh, there was also that little disagreement between the Catholics and the Protestants that you may recall called the Reformation in the 16th century that birthed, uh, you know, the entire Protestant movement. All through history... The church and Christians have been thrust into theological and orthopraxic, like the way they do things, change uh, and contemplation. And generally, that has pushed us closer to what I think the kingdom of God should look like. Generally speaking, the changes have been because God has been trying to move his people to a more loving, more gracious uh, worldview. I think that that's actually the arc of the entire Old Testament as well. And Jesus is finally, he arrives and he says, now, now the world is ready to hear and, and is ready to move in and accept that the kingdom of God is not just the kingdom of Israel. So all through history, God has been pushing the church and pushing Christians to accept a world that looks more like his kingdom. 
And I am grateful for the people who came before me. I'm grateful for the people uh, that allowed themselves to be challenged and grow. I'm grateful that their theologies about atonement and women and leadership and slavery and indigenous peoples and war and hell and justice, that they weren't seen as sacred, unchangeable concepts. I'm grateful that they have sought a deeper theological understanding of God's heart and allowed themselves to be provoked into theological change. And Because here's the thing, if you can read the Bible and not be challenged, if you can read the Bible and not be convicted and confused and confronted, then you're reading it wrong. And if you think that the Bible is explicitly clear about all the things that you think are important, you are definitely reading it wrong. See, faith in Christ is not just a simple doctrinal statement. And I know that the evangelistic methods that a lot of us kind of grew, grow, uh, learned growing up said that, no, 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 faith is simple. There are, here are the four bullet points. Here are the laws of, 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 um, you know, of Christ or the way of the, the cross or the whatever it is, you name it. We have boiled it down, made it as simple as we possibly can. And, and we've created a faith that makes it easy to sleep at night. But faith in Christ is not meant to be that straightforward. I know that's challenging. It is simple to believe and be saved, but to grow uh, and, 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 and to understand the kingdom of God requires deep transformation that is not simple. Faith in Christ is a lifelong journey of contemplation and prayer and action. Faith in Christ is a commitment to the poor and a commitment to justice and mercy and a commitment to loving your neighbor, even when they don't look the same or sound the same or believe the same or behave the same as we do. Faith in Christ is having the humility to repent and the courage to sacrifice and the wisdom to learn and grow and be transformed. If we are not open to God changing us and challenging us and poking us and prodding us, then, then we're not getting the, the kind of the benefit of a relationship with God. So I want to read um, in the book of Acts, because uh, we're, we're presented with some wonderful stories there, but there's one in particular that I think uh, is an incredibly important story for the development of the church. And it's a story where Peter changes his mind. So Peter is the kind of the, uh, the leader of the, of the early church movement there. Uh, and this is the genesis, this story of a total reformational change in his thinking uh, and in the thinking of the early church. So it starts out, uh, I want to read from Acts 10 and uh, verse 9. Uh, it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Already that's challenging to me because like, it's really easy to think that theological change happens through academia. Um, but here we have Peter uh, going into a contemplative trance, an ecstatic experience, which, which is really challenging. Um, anyway, he saw heaven opened. And something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. 
And this happened three times uh, in the Jeff uh, abbreviate, uh, sorry, in the Jeff uh, extended version because Peter was super thick. Um, it happened three times. Not only did it happen three times, but this story and, and what happens with Cornelius afterwards is recorded three times. It's the, 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 the narrative with Cornelius is the longest single narrative in the entire New Testament. Because this is really important. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Surely not, Lord. This is what Peter is like. No way. Peter's having a, a, a mind-blowing experience here. He's so confident about his theology that even when he is having a vision from heaven and uh, what is it here? And a voice booms in, in his experience as he's having this ecstatic experience. Even in his dream, he's like, I would not touch that animal. I'm not eating that pork. I am not having that bird. Oh no, that would be totally against the rules. Surely not, Lord. I have never broken the rules. I have excellent theology and practice. I am the ultimate Jew. Maybe that's not quite how he approached it. But he's offended at the idea that, that, he, would, that he would eat this, this impure food. But Peter was wrong. And his theology was wrong. And his worldview was wrong. And it needed to change. So while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius, so Cornelius has now had another experience where uh, he's been told, go and find this Peter bloke and get him to come visit you. Um, so the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out asking if Simon who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said this to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion, he is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. So Peter, he travels to uh, Caesarea uh, and he meets with Cornelius in his home. And through this, he begins to fully comprehend and understand what the vision was about. See, in the, uh, the city of Caesarea is like, I looked it up. It is 105 kilometers uh, to the north and slightly to the west because it's on the coast. It's a port city on the Mediterranean. Um, so it is 105 kilometers uh, northwest of Jerusalem. And it is predominantly uh, populated by Gentile people, but there is a pretty decent sized um, Jewish population that was living there. Uh, so it's a port city and it was the capital of the Roman world at that time. So when we think of the, the Roman rulers, they, didn't, they weren't living in Jerusalem. So like Pontius Pilate, he would have lived up in, um, in Caesarea and he would travel to Jerusalem for important things. Uh, so this is a city that was built uh, by Herod the Great. Well, it was built by a bunch of people, but finally it was kind of the masterpiece of, of, um, of design and architecture was done by Herod the Great. And he had this, so like right on the beach, there's this incredible, huge hippodrome, which is like where they would have the, um, like the horse races, the chariot races, like think Ben-Hur style stuff. Like it was 
it's it's massive and then on the on like the the edge of the coast there's all these there's like a big rock pool and herod the great built himself a palace on the edge of the rocks there with a bathing pool that filled up by the sea so you know like when we think of like the um like um an ocean pool like down in sydney and things like that how there's like the swimming pools herod had one of those right on the edge of of caesarea here so it was this massive roman greek kind of setup um so and in the culture there it would have been really really wrong for peter to even eat in the same house as a gentile uh, so uh, according to the jewish law uh, a person's diet which we've already seen in this vision, is really important to their spiritual cleanliness and their purity. So eating with a Gentile was forbidden because you could, just by virtue of being near them, you could be made unpure by their bad impurity and their um, their eating. Uh, so, in in fact, even in Acts 10 here, uh, Peter says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So Peter goes in there and, you know, they have a conversation and Peter explains to them um, about uh, about Jesus. Uh, and so uh, Cornelius and, and his household are saved. Uh, and then in Acts 10, 34 and 35, it says, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him, and does what is right. So this is a moment where Peter's worldview shifts from thinking that the kingdom of God is a uh, a Jewish kingdom to it being something far, far grander and greater and more encompassing and beautiful than that, which is the kingdom that also the Gentiles could be a part of. Now, like I could understand Peter's kind of backward thinking if this was like, during when Jesus was walking around and he's like, oh no, you know, Jesus' message isn't for the Gentiles, it's just for the Jews because he's the Jewish Messiah. And I could probably understand it if in the weeks or even months, like after Jesus' death and resurrection, and then Jesus is like, I want you to go into all the nations to the ends of the earth. Um, But Peter's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go everywhere and convert everyone to Judaism and then convert everybody to Christianity. Like, that's actually what they thought. They thought, yep, we'll get everyone circumcised, we'll get everyone eating the right foods, we'll get everyone under the law of Moses, and then we'll introduce them to the Messiah because they saw Christianity simply as an extension of Judaism. Now, I could I could understand that for a little while, but the time between Acts kind of 2 and Acts 10, where I've been reading, is actually 10 years the early church has been growing and they've been gathering and they've been selling their belongings and hanging out together and doing their Christian thing for a full decade before Peter goes, maybe we should just let the Gentiles be Christians. He had a, a full 10 years of this theological development that's growing and bubbling and working its way out inside of him for 10 years. That's some seriously stubborn stuff. Because when I think about the gospel, I'm a Gentile. And it never even occurred to me to become a Jew. Like now when we think about the kingdom of God, no one in this room would say, well, you better get circumcised. Like it would never occur to us that that was the process because it is just accepted to us that the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews, but is also for the the Gentiles and the whole world. That God so loved the whole world, he sent his only son. Not just the Jews, got to be a Jew. Peter has stubbornly held onto this idea for a full decade. 
This idea that we would now say is completely antithetical to the gospel. Now, that's a pretty big blind spot. And you would think, great, it's all settled. Not so much though. Uh, It gets worse. Because five chapters later in the book of Acts, again, you're thinking, hmm, in my mind, maybe it's like three weeks. How long does it take them to get back from Caesarea to Jerusalem? They have this thing called the Council of Jerusalem, where um, because Paul uh, has been having a big argument with a bunch of uh, people who are Mezzanite Jews, so they are Jewish Christians, they have come from Judea and they start saying to everyone, you've got to be, um, you've got to be circumcised if you want to be a real Christian. Uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas are like, nah, we don't think that that's true. Uh, so they decide to go to Jerusalem. They have the council of Jerusalem with all of the elders and all of the apostles get together and they have a big powwow and they decide, yeah, okay, we probably don't have to get circumcised to be Christians. Uh, and later on, if you read that, they go and tell people and it says that they were glad. I'm like, yeah, you're damn right they were glad. Uh, the, it's the most understated verse in the whole New Testament, in my opinion. Uh, they were very glad about that. Here's the thing, though. That council in Jerusalem was another 10 years later. That happened in 50 AD. So Jesus died in like 30 AD. And then in 40 AD, Peter's like, hey, wait a minute. Why don't we let the Gentiles in? And then 10 years later, the church finally ratifies that. They're not the fastest moving organization on the planet. Um, They finally decide, yeah, all right, we'll let let the, the Gentiles get saved without first becoming Jews. I hope one day um, that the issues that we are chewing through now, the the struggles that we are having now, the theological challenges that we are faced with now, that, that we will look back on them in the future, that my children will look back on them and they'll go, wow, how funny is it that they argued about that? How weird is it that they thought that you had to get circumcised to be a Christian? How weird is it that they thought you had to, you know, go to church every week and um, and and take communion from a priest and do confessions from a priest and be part of the Catholic Church in order to be saved? Wow, I love that we don't argue about we can be saved by faith. That's a cool thing that is not a big argument for us. And I hope that the things that we are looking at now, one day people will look back and they'll say, yeah, Yeah, I don't know why they spent 20 years. Thanks, Peter. Um, I don't know why the church spent so long to figure this out. When I look back at history, I think, geez, I don't know why it took so long for them to realize that slavery was probably bad. But I'm glad that we can look back on that now and go, geez, that was silly. The contemplative even mystical experience that Peter had whilst in prayer radically altered the shape of his faith and his future ministry. It was a huge moment for the church. And then 10 years later, when they kind of ratified that in Jerusalem, it was a huge moment for the church. And it was a time of huge theological change. Now, the irony is, is if you actually read the, the, the Council of Jerusalem, they said, yep, yeah, don't have to get circumcised, but there are a few rules still. So they wrote in a few rules. That we would now go, yeah, I think that's still pretty stupid as well. There was rules about what you could eat still. Uh, They still couldn't quite cope with the idea that you didn't have to become a Jew first. And that's in the Bible. In the same way, we must be willing to pray and seek God and be open to the reshaping of our theology and our worldview. Let Let me put this another way. If you can't identify any area of change or growth in your theology or practice in the last season of your life, 
I would politely suggest that what you have is not unyielding faith, but more likely hard-heartedness. If we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, something has to change. If we are working at our salvation daily, it has to be reflected in our character and in our thinking. Now, I'm not saying that we should be wishy-washy. See, a lot of, like, I talk like this and I meet with pastors because we're the worst at this. Because pastors have learned a few things and then that means that they are an expert on everything. And worse, they've gotten up and said a bunch of stuff to people, which means they now have to believe that forever because they don't want to look like a hypocrite. I wish there were more pastors that would get up in their churches and say, you know what, I was wrong. That thing that I taught you was wrong. We lack that humility. And I go to pastor's conferences and I say to them, uh, it's my favorite go-to question. It's like, when was the last time you changed your mind? When was the last time you repented to your community of a dumb idea that you had that some other dumb person gave you a decade ago that you believed and reinforced for so long you thought it was true and then all of a sudden realized? This is, so I don't have, I don't have too many pastor friends. That may be true now. But I'm not saying we should be wishy-washy and easily manipulated and, and fall for dumb tricks and fads. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if you were an unchangingly steadfast Christian in the early church, you probably also wanted to circumcise the Gentiles and maybe had slaves in your ownership. So maybe, maybe the ideas they had needed some reformation. A thousand years later, being a good Christian meant taking up a sword and killing Muslims. That's what it was to be a good Christian. 500 years after that, faithfulness looked like murdering your Anabaptist brethren. And let's not forget witch burning, extorting indulgences from the poor, or both in America and Australia, because Paul's there, my, my token American in my audience. Um, in both American and Australian history, the likening of ourselves as being God's chosen people and that we are called to take a promised land, this was used as a means to slaughter indigenous peoples and steal their land from under them. They just said, this is what God has promised us. That was the good Christian view. The idea that we have everything figured out and that we are utterly righteous in our thinking and our practice is absurd. And the arrogance to assume that our own particular brand or sect has finally, at this time in history, got everything right is stunningly short-sighted. Every generation every generation has worldviews for which they must repent and ours is no different. When we look back at history and we see the way that Christians have behaved at different times and the ideas that they held to be true, we are appalled and the same will be said for us. In a decade, in 50 years, in 100 years, people will look back and I want to believe that we were part of the, the, the area in the church that was willing to repent and move forward. Right now, the world needs the church to hear from heaven and to demand change. The kingdom of God is near. This is what Jesus did. He turned up and he said, here and now the kingdom of God is near and it's going to change and, this, and nothing will ever be the same again. This is the mandate of Christians. We are people of repentance, which means we turn and we go the other direction. We must represent a kingdom 
that isn't so bound by our own broken worldview that we can't hear from heaven and move forward. So the big question I have is, why didn't the Holy Spirit give Peter the vision 10 years earlier? Seems like a bit of an oversight. Why did it take another decade for the church in Jerusalem to ratify this idea? And I reckon it's probably because Peter wasn't ready. Jesus literally stood with them. And they're like, leave this, uh, this village. And the village didn't really accept what Jesus had to say. And um, the sons of thunder, the um, Zebedee brothers, James and John were like, shall we call fire from heaven and destroy them all? Jesus is like, what are you, the dumbest disciples? Why do we call you the thunder sons of thunder? We call you the sons of something else because y'all are really stupid. Here I am presenting a kingdom of love, a kingdom where I heal the sick, where I care for the broken, where I raise the status of the lowly, and you think that we're going to kill people who disagree with us. See, even when Jesus was standing in front of them, they couldn't get their head around that God is love. They couldn't get their head around that the kingdom of God is for all people. They couldn't do it. So I'm guessing that it took Peter a while. It took him a while to get to a place where this vision from heaven was something that he could accept. And when I look at my own journey, and I look back 10 years ago at some of the things that I said and did, I'm glad I did not have a podcast. And I, I, you know, like, I feel like for every week that I preach now, I should go back and take off the last week I preached on my, uh, you know, the first week or whatever that's still on my podcast, because I want to be changing and growing. And I want, as a leader in a church community, I want to be pushing and changing and growing you as well. My job is not just to say, here is the 20 ideas that you absolutely have to believe and then spend the rest of my life manipulating you to believe that. My job is to lead. And that means I need to repent and change as well. Now, there's probably people who are really worried I'm about to drop some huge bombshell. I'm not. Like, this is a message about change. I don't have something to change for you right today. Uh, but if you look over the arc of our journey over the last 15 years, there has been significant change. And I am, I am embarrassed and ashamed by some of the things that I have said and done in the past. And I am grateful um, that I am able to change and that, I don't get persecuted by our, at least by my friends, for having that change. Because there are a lot of churches where a pastor is not allowed to have a new idea or they're not allowed to change and they lose their job when they go through some kind of mystical experience that makes them realize the kingdom is bigger than what they had been told. So I am grateful for this community that allowed, has allowed us to go on a journey together where we seek Jesus and we seek his kingdom. I wish that I had figured out a lot of the things I know now earlier, especially people who have children, like your third child is getting a better run of it than your first one because you figured a few things out already. And like I always think, well, at least like, you know, like for me, Ari got a lot more of our attention because she was an only child for a little while there. But Ted's getting the benefit of our experience. He also gets away with murder because he has two siblings that have paved the way for him. I think that God often waits a really long time to do something immediately. I think, you know, like there is small incremental change, but I think a lot of change happens, like what happened with Peter here. I think over time, God had been working and working and working and working and working. And then he was like, and now it will change. Now is the time for breakthrough. 
I think this is what the Christian life should look like. It's a process of growth that leaves us looking more and more like Jesus as the days and years go on. And whilst this journey um, has left me with less certainty, because I don't have my my list of four spiritual laws that I can guarantee are 100% right, always, forever. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, because there is so much more gray for me, there is less certainty. But... Um, but paradoxically, even though there's less certainty, I feel more in control and I feel more happy and I feel like I love God more and I know his kingdom better. Even though I have less certainty, I have more faith. God waits a long time to do something immediately. And I think that for a lot of people, there is this, there are a niggling changes that God has been working on in your heart, in your practice and in your ideas and your worldview. And he's just been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And I want to encourage all of us to go and find a room and sit and contemplate. To contemplate is just to think about something deeply. So sit and contemplate and say, Jesus, what is it that you need me to change? What is it that I've been holding on to? And this might be a theological idea, but it might also be a um, something in a relationship you have or something in the way you treat your children or the way that you are living your life or even your employment or your future. There is something for all of us that I think that, that God wants us to change, to have the courage and the humility to repent of those things. That is to turn, not to say everything I've done is always bad and wrong, but to just turn from where we are and go in a new direction. going to pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you uh, are willing to wait for us. But I also pray that we would be prompted to change, to, to be transformed, to be renewed. So I pray you would challenge us and provoke us and confront us and confuse us and compel us. I pray that we would seek your kingdom and know uh, your will that we would read the Bible and it would be like a whole new world is being opened up to us and we would see things we've never seen before. I pray that you would uh, encourage us and challenge us. And I thank you that this community is a place uh, where I have been able to go through that journey. I pray that we would uh, get around each other and help each other. I pray that we would weigh and test and make sure that we are still um, living in a way that is consistent uh, with your scripture and also with your life. I pray that we would be uh, stalwart about the things that are true. And I pray that you would help us to shift on the, the things where perhaps we've just been stubborn. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like us to, uh, uh, I'll go and rejoin the, the group on online, but I want us to have a conversation. Um, about change, um, about repentance, uh, which is to turn. When was the last time you changed your mind? What is something that you, uh, perhaps like if there's some testimony, what is something you held on to and thought was true for a really, really long time? And then over a long period of time and then immediately it just changed. All of a sudden you realize that's not true. Maybe it's something about your own identity that changed. Maybe it's something in your theology. Maybe it's something in your, in your world. Um, but I just I want us to be a community that embraces that idea. Because uh, if we can't change, I don't know how we can expect the world to. 
especially like when we we talk about you know like it's it's easy enough to talk to teenagers about Jesus and have them accept Jesus but when you get a bit older you get so stuck in your ways we as Christians don't model what we want from non-Christians we want them to consider Jesus and accept his kingdom and and understand what that looks like and that requires unbelievable humility and it's terrifying to to change something like uh, believing in God but then we are the most stubborn unchanging people on the earth and we expect other people to then change so i think that just having a culture that says you know what it's okay to question and to doubt and to grow uh, that's a really important thing so i'd like us to have um, maybe just a conversation about that for a little while